0: Hi, this is Eric Chase, afternoon host on Cumulus Media Toledo's pop radio station Q105 and your host for 68 words. I can call this part two of our advocacy series. In our last episode, we spent time with Katie Hunt Thomas, learning about the stable program. This time, we'll chat with Katie's colleague, Brittany Maddox, who's a disability rights advocate here at the Ability Center. Brittany's focus is advocating and working to find solutions to the direct care crisis, which is only worsening.
1: I know a lot of smaller agencies that provide in-home care want to pay their workers, and I have heard of individuals who they, they will cut costs and other ways in order to pay for their workers but like you said it's not a long-term solution they can't do that the state does not increase the funding and ensure that that in additional funding is going to the workers there will be a continued mass exodus from the workforce which would then force people with disabilities into institutional living
0: people, places, and spaces doing disability differently
1: sharing first-hand experience in our podcast inspired by the 68 words that support the disability rights movement learn where it started and what's next hi my name is Stuart james and i'm the executive director here at the ability center and welcome to
0: 68 words let me welcome everyone to another edition of 68 words here with the ability center and i will introduce one of the wonderful employees here of the ability center this is Brittany maddox good morning good morning what is your role here
1: so I am a disability rights advocate. Um, I focus on healthcare care and public access. So what that means is largely I work at a systemic level, um, but I do as well work at the local level. Um, how do we make sure that our spaces are accessible for people with disabilities? How do we make sure that people are receiving the appropriate care, that they have access to care, um, that they're not encountering significant barriers um, to receiving those needed services. So we largely listen to a lot of what the consumers say. We do surveys um, and then we kind of are able to develop some issue areas and then pro- like produce a plan to, for action. Um, so that's largely what I'm focusing on right now.
0: I could call this part two in a mini series of advocacy because in our previous episode we talked about stable so that people who have disabilities can still work but get the right uh, the benefits that they deserve of so um, it's our little mini series here uh, give me a brief background on on what direct care is for those that might not know
1: yeah for sure so direct care um, or a direct care worker is someone who, um, provides services for people with disabilities, often in their home. So they might help with bathing, eating, getting in and out of bed, helping get them dressed to go to work. Um, those activities of daily living. Um, that is when someone comes into your home and provides those services for you. Um, there's also nurses. Um, so it depends on kind of what you need as an individual. Um, maybe you have a trach, or you know you're on a ventilator. So that will require a nurse to come in um, and ensure that you are able to get up in the morning, that you can get your meds and eat, um, all of those activities.
0: Perhaps uh, some people would be familiar with it for having um, elderly uh, parents or grandparents and someone coming into their home, um, not necessarily disabled, but not necessarily able to get around and do the things that the rest of us who are maybe much younger can do, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. So yes, a lot of people do think that it is, um, they they recognize that. That if for aging folks um, who need a little bit of assistance um, performing those activities of daily living, or maybe someone with a developmental disability. A lot of people um, know of individuals with developmental disabilities who have someone who helps them out. Whether that's going to an activity, going to work, uh, you know, going to the movies, etc. So I think those are two common scenarios where people have. Ex- Experience.
0: Going to the movies, uh, a, a wonderful activity for, for many of us. Let's talk about the independent living movement that happened several decades ago now.
1: Yeah, so um, it happened in the 60s, the independent living movement, um, where there was a push for deinstitutionalization of people with disabilities um, coming off of the heels of the civil rights movement. Um, So a lot of individuals with disabilities had the opportunity to start living in the community um, and receiving services in the community. And that's kind of when there was this huge push for uh, civil rights, right, in the 60s, and that kind of snowballed from there um, Um, into the 80s where there was significant movement where people were advocating for services, for ways to live in the community. We had centers for independent living, which the Ability Center is, um, were created. And those are p- spaces that were intended to be run by people with disabilities for people with disabilities, um, learning to advocate um, employment, advocating for services at you know the local, state and federal level. So we had this movement where people were recognizing that I no longer want to live in this institution. I want to live in my community. I want to hang out with my friends. I want to do these things. And that I'm a human being just as someone who does not have a disability and I have the right to those rights and to be equal in that sense
0: it's it's you talk about human rights it's human nature to want to be independent and do things that everyone else is doing exactly um we we we're in a direct care crisis let's roll the calendar back an entire pandemic What level was the crisis at? And you can do one to 10 or one to five. There was probably a crisis brewing in 2019 and before. And obviously, COVID things probably supercharged that. But let's go back three or four years. Where were we? What level was the crisis at then?
1: Um, I think it was still at close to what we are at now, you know, it Maybe not on the same scale, but slightly less. We were still having a direct care crisis because one in the 80s there was um, the home and community based services waivers um, started, and that means that you can apply for a waiver to receive those services in your community, and they're called home and community based waivers. Um, but with that introduction, I don't think that there has been significant funding and support of those waivers and the hcbs settings um so we're talking that this has been happening i've been in situations where i've heard individuals say this has been happening and brewing for at least 30 years that there's not been significant investment and structure in place over the last 30 years to ensure that there is a workforce that there is a way for people to stay in the community Um, And I think with COVID and the pandemic, I think that just opened up eyes for everyone to know, like, this is actually really bad right now. And it put a lot of stress on individuals, it put a lot of stress in different, you know, the hospitals and everything. And I think it just kind of was that catalyst um, that people needed to know that we have a significant problem because I would also note that Many people, whether it's at the state or the federal level, have kind of always assumed that parents and family members were going to be the unpaid providers for their family members with Mm -hmm. a disability. And with COVID, a lot of people had to leave the workforce. It put significant stress on them in order to have to provide care but also try and go to work, so there was this huge movement to come out of the workforce um, in order to provide care for your family member because that was just the general assumption that you would always be that provider. Now the state did put in place a flexibility where family members could apply and become paid caregivers, but that's not a guarantee right now, especially with the unwinding. So we are advocating for the state to include those flexibilities permanently so that that if a family member wants to be a provider, that they're paid for the work that they're doing because they have to leave the workforce.
0: Sure, and this, this chain link fence, everything shakes when there's a, a link at one end uh, and people are wondering why they're having a hard time finding employees and you yeah. just illustrated one of the many reasons why we still see a lot of now hiring signs. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but during COVID, um, a lot of people stepped away from their jobs. They, they, they looked at their boss and said, I can't believe i let you treat me like this for such a long time. I did not read many stories of nurses, STNAs, other direct care uh, providers. Leaving what they did because it, it, it's a passion for them, um, and I and they didn't want to leave their people. Uh, would that be correct? That a lot of people just stuck it out as grueling as it was.
1: I do think that some people did stick it out, especially those who worked in larger settings, not necessarily just in the home. Um, I think they they do care for the individuals that they're they're helping and that they're providing services for um, but i think that there was a realization especially now that you know on average that an in-home care worker makes 12 13 dollars an hour which no one is able to live or provide you know for their families on 13 dollars an hour they're they're just not there and so i think now that we're coming out of an unwinding there's a a larger outcry for this right treatment, like what you were talking about, that I am performing physical labor that's pretty extensive, you know, providing care for someone. And I have the right to be paid appropriately and adequately for my work. And if you're not going to, then I'm going to leave.
0: There's there's human decency involved in this. Um, let me try to paint a picture. It shouldn't be too hard. So you just mentioned 12 or $13 an hour for helping someone who is either elderly, can't take care of themselves, whatever the reason, a disability, like a, a literal human being. We've established yeah. that. You're going to make 12 or $13 an hour. Or... You can say hello and welcome to this fast food restaurant for $15 an hour and hand someone some French fries. Yeah. We're treating, we're going to pay people a little bit more to take care of French fries rather than people. Exactly. It's it's beyond common sense. It's, it's outlandish. Exactly. How do we get these people paid more money, uh, what they deserve, what they earn, and how they take care of these individuals? How do we pay them appropriately?
1: So there are a couple ways. One, right now we're in the midst of Ohio's budget. So every two years, Ohio has a huge process where they are passing the budget for the next two fiscal years. So right now, um, the budget is in the House. The governor has already introduced his budget. Um, The different state agencies, so that would be Medicaid, Aging, Department of Developmental Disabilities, Job and Family Services, et cetera, all of those state agencies are submitting their budget requests. So I would say advocate at the State House if you can, um, if you can't get to it right now while the House has the bill, um, there's an opportunity come May or so where it will then be in the Senate. So you will still have an opportunity to advocate that direct care workers receive additional funding so that they can have higher wages. Um, I would also continue reaching out to your local representative um, you know, at the State House to Ensure that if it didn't happen in the budget, that someone could maybe introduce an amendment um, and introduce a bill that would that would do that. I would also point someone to our website. Um, There's lots of information on our direct care website um, and ways that you can um, input your information and you can get updates from us um, on ways that we are advocating, whether we're doing a larger group advocacy at the state house or sending letters, um, things like that.
0: All right theabilitycenter.org and there is a slash after that I could give you but just get to the Ability Center or give Ability Center Toledo a Google and look up direct care crisis for some of the things that you just spoke about about information and who you can get in touch with. Uh, let me get really granular and technical here as we did a little bit with with the stable funds but it's important stuff to kind of understand this and maybe we can find some you and I can solve this problem right here Brittany. Um, <laughs> good. How, how, how does Ohio work this that makes it such a challenge as opposed to some other places perhaps
1: yeah so other places have um, submitted legislation that strictly states what a direct care worker should be paid at a minimum Um, Colorado did it Maine did it um, Maine did it a little bit differently where they attached their increased wages to the state minimum wage Um, so it's a it's a little bit different model they've also consolidated um state agency offices into one office um, so that there wasn't three or so directors um, you just had one main office that oversaw the health care the public health care in the state and then just had smaller offices that would take care of individual um, areas like direct care for for example um, But I, in conversations, I don't know that Ohio is there yet, but I don't think that it's impossible for Ohio. I do think there's a way to streamline the agencies in order to ensure that we're really taking a good look at what is happening at the local level, right at the individual level, um, instead of looking at it as high, like this high umbrella when you're not really getting down to the individual stories. Yeah, I would say that. <laughs> we have a direct
0: care crisis and you're talking about the budgets and how this will be laid out for the next couple of years. Um the cynic in me says that that the politicians, bureaucrats will sit there and go, you know, we should give them an extra couple of bucks an hour. So, like let's get in the 1475 and and the optics will be good and we'll keep and we'll keep these people somewhat happy. When the reality is um with many things, many people who have gotten pay increases in the last 18 months, they've been wiped out by inflation. Um, They're actually probably, as a bottom line, making less than when they got the raise because of the cost of living now. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that if there is a dollar or $2 raise, which likely won't be enough for a lot of these people that we've discussed, they just throw their hands up and say, "I I care about my people, but I can't do this anymore. And they walk away. And you could have A mass of people, we already have a shortage. Those people could literally pick up and walk away. And these people who need their help will be up up the creek. Yeah. How do we avoid that? Or how likely is that?
1: I think that it it could be very likely, um, especially if the legislature does not increase the wages to a livable wage. So, for example, in Ohio, there's a report that came out to afford a modest two-bedroom home. In Ohio, you need an average of $17 an hour, knowing that in, if you were in a metropolitan area, you would need more than that because, like you said, everything has increased. You know, food, mm-hmm. housing, everything has increased. Um, and that, so, I'm
0: sorry uh, to interrupt. That report may be uh, antiquated at this point with right. the way things are going up and down and houses are up. They come down for a month, they go back up. Absolutely. It's, it's spotty right now. So the more the government could offer, the better. As far as salary is concerned.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think... What we don't want to do and what I have been trying to um, advocate for is historically Ohio has increased reimbursement rates. So whatever waiver you're on, that agency has received increased funding from the state via a reimbursement rate. However, there's no language stating that any of that additional funding has to go to the workers. And so it hasn't. It has stayed at the top for administrative fees, et cetera. Um, And I know a lot of smaller agencies that provide in-home care want to pay their workers. And I have heard of individuals who they they will cut costs in other ways in order to pay for their workers. But like you said, it's not a long-term solution. They can't do that. Um, So if the state does not increase the funding and ensure that that additional funding is going to the workers, there will be a continued mass exodus from the workforce, which would then force people with disabilities into institutional living. Whether that's at a nursing home, uh, intermediate care facility, whatever that may look like, they will no longer be in the community. Um, And I think at that point you're risking individuals saying that, well, we could just build a bigger facility and have people live there, which would be against their right. But I do think that we're kind of at a passing point. We have to figure out what we need to do because there are already people who are living and being forced into the hospital or an institution because they can't find a care provider.
0: One, uh, one of the things that I was thinking of, and I, I go back to elderly with this because my dad became my grandfather's caretaker because he... They both did not want to pay the cost to go into a home mm-hmm. somewhere. And he wanted his independence. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he wanted to sit and listen to a baseball game as opposed to having to share that that listening time with someone else. It's really expensive for people to be in those places, even if they want to go. That's that's one thing. The other thing I was thinking is what you alluded to earlier. Like, let's say there's a there is a mass walkout of the of the direct care providers. Well, again, what you said earlier, you're going to have people who have to who are going to have to pull away from their regular jobs and maybe completely step away from them to take care of like, I might have to stop doing what I'm doing. Granted, my dad does not live here, but he's a state over in Pennsylvania. Um, you have young workers, relatively speaking, in the workforce who are in their prime earning years who have to step away and can no longer do that to help an elderly relative, an older sibling who has a disability. And then again, we jerk on that workforce chain and even more now hiring signs go up. And then again, it's just this collateral damage that sprays everywhere. Yeah.
1: And the state does have an obligation to ensure that people are receiving home and community-based services. Um, that was told by the federal government. There was um, something that was passed called the Olmstead decision, um, that everyone has the right to live in the least restrictive setting of their choice. Um, so. And what you continue saying to people with disabilities when we are like, ah, I don't really want to do anything or just take the $16 and be quiet, (laughs) you're minimizing and continuing to devalue the individual, the person with the disability. You're saying, well, even though it might be more expensive to provide you care in an institution, that's probably just where you should be anyway, instead of providing those supports in the community. Do you have kids? I do. I have one son. How old? He is seven and a half.
0: Perfect age for me to ask this question. And I will tie this back to what you said, how the federal government says states have to provide a certain thing for these people. I'm sure there are times your son does not listen to you. He has complete earmuffs on, right? Like you could tell him, you can threaten him. I'm taking away your devices. And he's like, la, 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 la. And he just walks out the house and slams the door on mom's voice. Could something like that happen with the state to the federal government and then and, and the and federal government saying you have to provide for these people?
1: I think that gets that would be that gets a little tricky because that would come down to what could someone sue on the basis of um, and suing on an Olmstead decision, you know, suing the state or whomever um, using the Olmstead decision. It takes a lot of resources, it would have to be very, um, significantly sound. Like that lawsuit would have to be sound, um, and would take a huge team of lawyers to do. Um, we have, there've been groups that I've in that people have floated that idea. Um, but I don't think that there's a significant legal case for it currently, but I don't think that it could be out of the realm of possibility in the future. Um, if the state continues to just kind of look the other way
0: and cut 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 or not yeah. provide for all these people that we talked about who could just simply go handle fries instead of handling people because exactly. they're getting paid more um and also uh, again the cynic in me is thinking uh class action lawsuit lots of lawyers and then the state government going well we're just going to tie it up in court for three or five years right um, the website, one more time, please, uh, abilitycenter.org, and then just slide over to the direct care crisis to find out, uh, again, more people that you can talk to, get in touch with, representatives, how you can advocate for yourself or someone that you care about. Uh, is there any plan of action for the state right now to actually do something about this rather than Brittany just banging on the state <laughs> house window going, we need more money for these people. Is there actually a plan in place or something that that's being discussed to get this fixed to to some degree?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think that there the Department of Medicaid that oversees many of these waivers um, and care for individuals um, has proposed a significant budget increase and using federal dollars with it as well.. Um, which I heard from her would be relatively $16 an hour with the additional funding. We've been asking for a minimum of $20 an hour, um, recognizing that 16 isn't just really gonna be enough. Because one thing I would also note is that many of these workers, they don't get mileage reimbursement. um, They don't get benefits. Many of these workers are on Medicaid themselves. And so I have brought into the conversation, the state is paying. So if you have one individual with a disability, they are receiving Medicaid, Medicare insurance right and the person in their home is also receiving medicare who has a high probability of having children who also are receiving medicare or Medicaid, excuse me. So in that one room, you have a lot of p- potential for people to receive Medicaid services. So the state has a huge Medicaid bill, where if they just provided these other benefits, right, mileage reimbursement, ensure that people have access to private health insurance that's affordable. Um, <laughs> <right>?
0: <laughs> that's a podcast for another time. I I, I have to. I, it's been a long time since I heard someone say affordable private health insurance. That was a good one, Brittany. I wasn't it, And everyone can relate to this.
1: <laughs> yes. So if we don't have those, then you're going to have continued amount, a number of people who are saving Medicaid and the state is going to continue to having this huge Medicaid bill. So I think there are other, they're not creative ways because they're just someone's right as a worker to receive those benefits, especially if I'm paying taxes, I should have the right to have this access. I should have a career. Uh, ladder. I should have these employment opportunities that could advance my life in my industry of choice. But if I'm not and I'm not provided those, then there's no incentive, like you said earlier, for me to stay. But then the state is going to continue having a high budget because it is significantly more expensive to um, pay for someone to live in a nursing home or what a facility than to provide the services in the home. So. While the Medicaid budget has increased potentially right now, still has to go through the process, it's not in in law yet, Um, what's going to happen two years after that? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're concerned about is while these workers potentially might see raises in the next year or two, there's no guarantee that that's going to stay after because the state is going to continue to have to have a higher bill. And I don't know that that is – That's not a gamble that I want to, uh, it's not a risk I want to take. I don't want to gamble that.
0: Another uh, piece of economics that is arcane and inscrutable and hopefully that legislators look at something like this, but from this level, I go, maybe we should give them $22 an hour so they can buy their own really expensive private health insurance because that's probably less out of our pockets, state, you and I, taxpayers, than funding them entirely through Medicaid. Right, right. But we're just sitting here doing a podcast, and we're not in. We're not in kind of legislator. <laughs> um, can I throw a curveball at your head real fast? Sure. So, <laughs> the last six months, um, uh, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. has become enormous. Um, big tech companies can't get it out fast enough. One of the things that I have begun to see in the nerdy pl- parts of the internet that I read is the evolution of this will be more caretaking for individuals like this. Um, And I just, I know you weren't prepared for this, but it's potentially a solution. And I know we had thrown out the word innovative solutions, but perhaps with where we are right now in these transformative times, um, maybe some of these things can be alleviated uh, with artificial intelligence, and I'm not, I'm not talking about like talking to a computer and a computer, you know, giving you some type of companionship. I mean, like an actual body, like a body, like the the sci-fi movies we watched in the <laughs> '90s, which are now coming to life. Is there any plausibility to something like that?
1: I do think that that is very likely in the future. I don't know how soon, um, but I do think that's where we are headed because right now there is a push to use technology in care in the way you were talking about Um, getting on an iPad or getting called and someone is watching you or reminding you to take your medicine, uh, to brush your teeth, whatever it might be, that there's someone off-site who can kind of monitor you if you do not need more extensive, like nursing care or services, that they could provide those services from a tablet or a computer. Um, But I, I think that's the beginning steps. If we know anything about history, right? Like it's those small little steps that are going to just blow up yeah and you would have you know what is that old robin williams movie where he was like the robot like bicentennial man or something you know and he was like um i think it was his voice but he was it. uh like he provided care i think he kind of like cooked or something it was a robot who you're not
0: talking about mrs doubtfire right no. she was definitely <laughs> that was definitely not a robot
1: no i was thinking
0: more was it the will smith movie i robot
1: oh right i robot i do think that that's possible. and. and
0: And I only bring this question up because, like, this AI stuff and the chat GPT, Mm -hmm. uh, some Google things just came out today because it's it's this arms race of AI. And the idea that I just threw out to you of, like, uh, uh, an artificial body doing some of these roles has plausibly been discussed with how fast this is all moving and it's going to put a lot of people out of work. It will also solve some of these problems. That's why I just wanted to pick your brain about it. But you're right. On a smaller level if someone uh, maybe didn't want someone around and they could choose an AI option where they have a device and in the same way we get reminders on our phone. It can guide them along and not in in such a robotic way but with a a heartbeat or a pulse because we'll know we'll be able to copy that too, with all this intelligence. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Um, theabilitycenter.org direct care crisis is what you want to look up. Any last thoughts before we do some, some fun questions?
1: Nope, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot.
0: Cool. Well, thanks for all that. It's important yeah. things. And I'm glad that over these last two episodes, um, it's great to talk about experiences and those with disabilities who are doing amazing things more than sometimes the the totally average person um, that we've had the, the chance to chat with here. Um, I think the education is important because there's a lot of underlying problems. And as I think you've illustrated, and I've said in a much more layman way, all these things are linked. Yeah. All these things are linked together. And if we can find um, a lot of little solutions, it could take care of the, some of these really big problems.
1: Yep, I agree.
0: What, what, oh, Mallory didn't put the, oh, the fun questions are on here. I did want to ask you, so where uh, where is your office here? You, you have a cubicle over there. I'm pointing to my right, your left.
1: <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I am on the advocacy team. So it's myself, um, my boss, Katie Hunt Thomas, and Sally Fish. She's another advocate. She works in housing and transportation. And we are in the cubicle in the back. Um, when you walk in the building, we're to the right kind of like on that far right wall.
0: Um, I want to know who your favorite coworker is here and why.
1: Ooh, well, I would definitely say Sally because I love her. Um, right. I did have some classes with her, so I did know her before she started working here and um, she just makes it Fun And it's a great way to kind of like talk to somebody um, because we have some of similar backgrounds and experiences just to kind of bounce off these thoughts that we have.
0: What made you want to be here in the first place?
1: So I am a person with a disability. Um, I have a non apparent disability, but I think my experiences and some of the things things that have happened to me in my life have kind of always pushed me in that direction of wanting to be an advocate. It's just kind of like sat there in the back of my mind. Um, and then one day, I, I always tell this story, my son was at preschool and I was a stay-at-home mom um, during that time and I'm like watching the Kardashians or something, drinking coffee. And I thought, you know, I probably should go back to school because-
0: You had that thought at the perfect time
1: because <laughs> yeah. the rest
0: of your brain matter was going to start dripping out of your, your ears.
1: <laughs> so I was like, man, I wonder if I should go back to school. I think I should set myself up um, because I'm not from here, but um, I did go to community college back in the day after I graduated high school um, and it took many years off, uh, almost 15 to be exact. But um, I just felt like at that moment I should do something to set my life up and finish school. So I remember hearing there's all these people around town like, oh, we have a university, University of Toledo's here. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. You know, I'm not from here, what? So I Googled it and I went online and I thought, well, disability studies, I feel like that's something I should do. And so on a whim, right before Christmas, I thought I'm gonna apply to this, this program. So I did, I majored in disability studies. Um, I interned here and then I was like, yeah, I kinda like doing this stuff. And there was an opportunity for me to apply for a position and I did and here we are.
0: I think you made a really good decision going with that rather than just sitting drinking coffee and chain smoking watching the Kardashians all day. Solid decision. What a kind of a serious fun question. What to you is your biggest advocacy win? not that they're handing out trophies or yeah. certificates but you left a meeting you're going to columbus tomorrow something that you left something you accomplish a project and just like, yes
1: yeah so i think the biggest thing that i am i feel very proud of um, was helping getting past senate bill 202 which would prohibit courts and decision makers um to discriminate against a parent with a disability in in those cases. Um, Because I did experience some discrimination in the court when it came to custody of my son um, and how I was viewed in the court. Um, And I mean, it's public knowledge. I put it on the website so I can say. But in my in my case, I had someone tell me that, well, you don't look like there's anything wrong with you. So why aren't you working? You should be working. I'm gonna put your earnable income at X. So because someone
0: in the court system,
1: it was someone in the court system. um, I was receiving uh, social assistance. Right, I was on SNAP. I was on Medicaid at the time. Um, But that person assumed my productivity. Right by just looking at me. Um, and I thought, yeah, this didn't make me feel very good, and I don't think this was really all that great. Um, and that, so that's kind of stuck with me. For the last six years or whatever it has been, um, and so when an opportunity came up for this introduction of this bill again, it's tried to pass in Ohio before. Um, I thought we really need to we really need to work on this because there have been consumers who've called have experienced discrimination um, based on their disability as well, um, and court cases involving children and custody and visitation, it's, it's a heightened emotional space. And so a lot happens and it could just be very negatively impact parents with disabilities. Um, so that went into effect, the governor signed that bill um, earlier this year. So that'll go into effect um, in a few weeks. So courts and other court personnel are not um, allowed to discriminate a parent against a parent with a disability in those decisions.
0: How'd you bite your tongue?
1: <laughs> I, I think at that time when it happened, I didn't really know a lot. Um, and so I knew based on things that I heard, you just kind of stay quiet and your lawyer can address something if Got needed. It. So I just let it be. Um, but I just kind of used that as a point of action later.
0: You don't look like somebody who should be giving me that opinion, sir. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I, I often cannot bite my tongue. Last thing. Let's wrap up. Tell me something about your son. Um,
1: he is amazing, wonderful, I love him, but he's a hockey player. Okay. So, um, and he continues to challenge me um, and to continue growing and being the best parent I can for him. Um, it's funny, my grandmother always says that Brittany, you don't need any more children because he is like four children all in one. I was like, maybe I don't because he's more than I can handle anyway with uh, all the activities and things he wants to do. But
0: Has he had his first gruesome hockey injury yet?
1: Not yet. Because he's still young, they're not really allowed to do much. They're, they're starting to be a little shoving and some pushing every now and then. but. Um, help me for when that happens.
0: (laughs) We'll see if we can get you a buy four copays, get one free at the emergency room.
1: (laughs) That sounds good. Brittany Maddox,
0: what was your role again?
1: I'm a disability rights advocate.
0: We love that. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for all that you've done. Thanks for being on 68 Words.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. This is Chief Armstrong of Toledo Fire and Rescue. 68 Words has been a production of the Ability Center, hosted by Cumulus Media's Eric Chase. Engineering provided by Will Mellon and executive produced by Mallory Crooks. If you, your group, organization, or business is interested in hosting a disability Awareness experience or have other inquiries, please contact info at abilitycenter.org. Until next time, think differently. Think differently.